I'm going to pray. Let's get into it. God, I want to thank you for, I want to thank you for you being God and just, just, just coming in and knowing what we need and just uh, working with us, working through us, working around us sometimes. God, we want to recognize your presence just in the everyday things. And Lord, when, Lord, I want to pray for, for people that may be here this morning that need to be encouraged. God, they just, they just need, they need something today, this very day, God. They need something to go on, something that, that would just, just give them an extra breath, the strength to take another step. So God, I pray that you would do that, that you would meet people right where they are this morning and just, just breathe into them your spirit, the life that your spirit gives. And God, as we wrestle with your word this morning, uh, I pray that, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so we're going we're gonna to look at a lot of scripture this morning because we're, we're burning through, the, we're finishing up chapter 11, we're getting through, we're going to get through it quick. Uh, I didn't want to skip over it because I think there's a lot of good stuff in there that kind of, that kind of builds the story uh, to where Jesus is headed. Remember, the, the, uh, the story of Lazarus is where uh, John decides that the religious leaders, yeah, Jesus needs to die. And so, and so I don't want to skip over any of that stuff, and I want to just kind of share it. And, and so we're going to read a little, we're going to chat a little, we're going to read a little, we're going to chat a little, all right? So, John 11. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Mission accomplished. Finally, the impossible has been done. Jesus has raised this guy from the dead and he walks out of the grave. And can you imagine the looks on the people's faces? Like they just must be in a complete state of awe. Like, I mean, I mean, imagine you being at a wake or a funeral and some guy speaking words and the casket pops open and out comes the person. Yeah. I mean, I would believe, I would think anyway, that raising a person from the dead in the first century is as big of a deal as it would be today. And so these people, they must be just, you know, whispering and just in a state of state of, I think, I believe that they were paralyzed with amazement. And the, and the reason why I believe this, because Jesus has to tell them, um, hello, can you help the guy out, please? I mean, he's all wrapped up in these death clothes. Help him out. Un- unwrap him. And so I would guess that they would. And so, as the story goes. As the story goes. Here's the story. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and, and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many, many miracle, miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Some people have seen this miracle and they will believe. 
other people will have seen this miracle and they will not believe. Some people it will cause faith in, other people it will not cause faith in. And so the Pharisees get a report. Some people run to the leaders. And, and I know I've been kind of speculating and joking around what might have said, you know, like, hey guys, you should have seen this. This guy, Jesus, the dude's been dead for, I don't know if they use dude in first century, but I do. And so the, the guy's been dead and he raises him, he raises him right out of the grave. He walks right out of the grave. You guys need to do something about this because people are starting to follow him. People are starting to believe in him. He is making you look really, really bad. I have no idea if that's the way it went, but it sounds good anyway, because I don't believe that those people rush to the Pharisees to share the gospel with them and tell them that you should really follow this Jesus guy. Because look at what the Pharisees asked. They asked this question, what are we accomplishing What is going on here? They are recognizing they are not being very effective in their campaign to shut the mouth of Jesus or to stop him from doing the things that he's been doing and to stop people from following him. You see, they can't argue with the miracles. You can't argue with a dude that just came out of the grave after four days. Their biggest thing against him was, yes, people are believing in him, but all they really had was he's doing this on the Sabbath and that was breaking their law. And so they were angry with him. But they are recognizing and seeing these these things are just not things that everyday people will do. The miracles of Jesus. And you know, it's, I just keep coming back and I keep landing on this thing. It's just been the same over and over and over again for thousands of years. How can people's hearts harden in the presence of the power of the living God. It, 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 doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me. I think maybe string theory is easier to, to, to understand. How can the power of God cause people's hearts to, to get hard? I mean, and, and argue. And, and it would seem even today that people will not take the time to just engage or, or openly and honestly look at what is presented before them. I mean, even something as simple as a life, a life changed by God. First, first you were here and you were this type of person and then Jesus gets into your life and he moves you along this continuum and all of a sudden you're here and the people can't argue with what they've seen. The people can't argue with the change that they see in you, but yet they still will not honestly look at the truth, the power of God. And it's, it's just, it's sad and, and it's, I don't fully understand how or why. But just know, man, it's been going on for a long, long time. And for these leaders, they got a whole, they got more issues than just that. They are worried they are going to lose, they're going to lose everything. They're going to lose control. They're going to lose their privilege. I mean, if everybody starts to believe in Jesus, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, which is just so like middle school exaggeration. You know, everyone hates me or everyone is going to believe in him. But that's, that's where they are, man. They're, they're really afraid of what's happening and what Jesus is doing. They're fearing that they were going to lose face in the community. And, and if, they, if that happens, they will be um, financially impacted also. They have gotten very rich being the religious leaders. Very rich. And if people start believing and following this guy, well, then that means they're not going to come to the temple. They're not going to listen to us. And that means we're not going to make as much money as we make. 
And then let's add into the mix that, that if Rome finds out that we have lost the people, that if we have lost the authority to control these people, Rome is, they're just going to come in and they're going to take everything away from us. And we will be left with nothing. For the Pharisees, their religion, their faith, it's all about me. What's in this for me? It revolves around them, what they can get out of it, what they look like, the best seat in the synagogue, the money that they can get. It's all about them. Imagine that, religious leaders revolving their faith around them. I'm glad that doesn't happen in today's evangelical America. Or, or worse yet, what about, what about people who use faith or use religion as a consumeristic venue to get the things that they want out of life? I have a friend of a friend, and that's not, not a joke, it really is. Uh, he's a pastor, and he's a pastor at a church uh, in the vicinity of one of the bigger, one of the, you know, the, the big churches in Connecticut. I'm not going to say who because then I'll get in trouble. But, um, and this pastor has a tremendous gift tremendous gift of evangelism to to bring people to a place of relationship with jesus i mean it's it's um according to my friend joe it's almost scary the way that he could just like turn a conversation at the counter of subway and the person's crying in the corner on their knees giving their life to jesus i mean you know i'd be there and i'd be getting arrested for something but i mean this this person i mean and so and so hundreds of people over the years of his church have come to know Christ and have come into an honest relationship. And he has a very kind of stripped down philosophy of the way faith and the way church should work. But through hundreds of people over the years, his church is still somewhat small, still kind of under a hundred. And he, he, he kind of, he, he says it like this. He said, you know, people start with us we have, this, we have this little church, and you know, we don't have lots of bells and whistles. But, but then all of a sudden, they start looking around, and they, and they, and they go to that, that church. And at that church, they have everything. They have program after program, ministry after ministry. They have pastors for everything, like pastor to empty the garbage, pastor to clean the, you know, pastor of toilet cleaning. I mean, just pastors everywhere. They have a, a, a great building, and they just have so much to offer. They, they offer everything for every member of the family, and it, there's just multiple offerings for every member of the family. And they get kind of just caught up into that whole thing, and they leave his church because this other church has so much to offer. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. Believe me, hear me. Uh, a, a nice building would be nice, you, you know? And, and we, we, need to, we need to have things that can help people grow in their relationship with Christ. And so we do need things like programs. And it's good to have ministries. And it's good to have leaders that, that come along. Those things are good. And not everybody at this larger church has this mentality. But we have to be careful because in that context, it's very easy. It's very easy to uh, nurture a me philosophy of religion. What's in this for me? What do you have to offer me and my family and my wife and my children? And what if I bring a guest? What do you have to offer to them? What do you mean you just give them a stupid little brochure? Don't you have a, a coffee mug with your... I mean, so, so all of these things come into play and we have to be careful about those things. And that's why I think I love you guys so much because 
as we are trying to learn and develop a different way, that church isn't about us. It doesn't end here with us. It ends with us going out into the world. That if God, and I do believe God, is going to allow us to bring the gospel to more and more people as we go on, as we stay faithful to what God has called us to, that, that we could, this core can bring people to that place of going, you know what? It's not about you. Church is not about you. It's about, it's about up there. It's about them. It's the fundamental reason why we have partners, not members. We don't have privileges. We have responsibilities. And it's a responsibility to the kingdom of God, but I'm digressing. Let's go on. I'm sorry. Oh, this thing we're going to have to upgrade because it's not going fast enough. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. All right. Self-explanatory. You see what's going on here? They get together. They've just decided, you know what? The, the, the guy's got to die. We're going to arrest him, and we've got to kill him. This has to stop, and the only way it's going to stop is we need to find him, we need to arrest him, and we need to kill him. So Jesus is like, you know, I, I need some chill time. Now, he's not running from the Pharisees like he's afraid of them, so, but, he, but he needs some chill time because the next part of his journey is going to be a really difficult journey for him. So he takes off, and on the map, it's actually only about 15 miles away, and he chills out with the boys for a while. But now he's going to begin his way back to Jerusalem. And he was going to finally get to that moment where he will be put on the cross for, for us, for our sin. This is uh, chapter 12. Six, day, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, yeah, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. It's very interesting that in all four gospels, there's, there's an account of Jesus being anointed. In uh, Matthew and Mark, he's being anointed on his, on his head. They, they pour it on his head. In Luke's account, um, he's, he's being, it's being poured on his feet. He's reclining at the table of a Pharisee. But in Luke's account, it says that a sinner, a woman, uh, a sinner came to do that. Now, I don't, do not think in the things that I've studied and read, we cannot confuse Mary with, in John's account, with the sinner in Luke's account. But either way, there's, there's this whole anointing thing going on, and we can go into how the four Gospels have it a little bit different, but that's, not, that's for another day. So Jesus heads back to Bethany. He's going to hang with the family, and they're going to throw him a dinner. 
uh, in honor of an honor of him. Now, I, I guess that's the way you honor somebody who brings you back to life. You throw them a little potluck, you know, A to M, you bring the salad and, you know, the rest of you, you know, whatever, the chips. So they all get together and they're going to honor Jesus with a dinner. And Mary, she takes this perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet. She anoints him. In this culture, the pouring of perfume usually would be done on, on somebody's head. And it was kind of like to celebrate what's going to happen. And you would think that if this dinner is in honor of who Jesus is, and they're celebrating who he is, that, that the perfume would have been poured on his head. But no, Mary chooses the feet. And John wants to make sure we understand that, that this is how much this, this is very expensive perfume. In fact, later on in the text, we'll see that it was worth about a year's wages that Mary just took this and poured it all over the feet of Jesus. This act has cost her financially a lot of money, a year's worth of wages. It was just spilled out on the feet of Jesus. Now let's add to the fact that she is, she's anointing his feet. She is at his feet. This is an act of complete humility on her part. You see, for dinner guests to come to your house in first century, your slaves would tend to their feet, sometimes giving them perfume, sometimes washing the feet. And, and only a, that was the job of a slave. And it was the job of the lowest slave on your payroll. Maybe the one you didn't like so much. Maybe the one you were punishing. That would be the person that you would go have wash the feet or anoint the feet of your guests. Mary puts herself at the lowest possible position she can, she can think of at this dinner. She is at the feet of Jesus. This is not only a, an act of humility, but just devotion to Jesus. She chose to do this on her own. No one forced her. No one suggested it. She put herself at the feet of Jesus as a slave. And if that wasn't enough, she even pushes the envelope farther. In the Jewish culture, a woman would never let down her hair, especially, especially in public. In fact, in the book of Numbers, um, it says that, that if a woman is thought to have committed adultery, that she's brought to the high priest. And as a sign of shame, she is to, the high priest undoes her hair and lets her hair fall. And so no woman would let down her hair in first century Jerusalem. No good Jewish woman would ever consider doing that. There's a story, uh, an, an ancient rabbinic story that says Kamatha, she had seven sons and each one of her sons served as a high priest. And she was asked, Kamatha, how did you get such an honor where each one of your sons followed God this way and was able to become a high priest? And her answer was this, not even the rafters in my house have seen the hair on my head. And so for a Jewish woman with, with any, any self-respect, she would never, ever let down her hair, uncover her head in public. It's just something you just did not do. And it would seem to me that Mary did not calculate the costs of her worshiping of Jesus. She let down her hair to wipe his feet, wipe the perfume off of his feet with her hair. What she has done in this instance can, have, can completely have ruined her reputation in her, in, her, in her village where she lived, in her town. 
ruined her reputation. But for Mary, her faith, her religion, it's not about me, but has everything to do with Jesus, who Jesus is, and her relationship to him. I would say Mary understands the gospel. She, she gets it. And it's not even finished being written yet. Jesus hasn't even gone to the cross, but she, she gets it. You see, it's my belief that we have a very incomplete understanding of God in our culture. We, we, we look at God as a God of love and a God of compassion. And you know why? Because he is a God of love and he's a God of compassion. And I would, I would be failing you if I did not teach this God of love and this God of compassion. He loves you beyond what you can ever imagine. But that's, that seems to be what we really like to focus on. And we forget that he is also a God of judgment and a God of wrath. Every person that walks this earth will glorify God with their life. Every person. Either you will be an object of his mercy and his grace, or you will be an object of his righteous judgment and wrath. Either way, your life will bring glory to God. And But we, we, we tend to just more kind of gravitate towards the love and the compassion, forgetting about the wrath and the judgment. We are comfortable with the gospel of self-help. Positive thinking. Your best life now in seven easy steps by my book. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of just it kind of makes us makes us feel good, right? That that if your life isn't going the way it needs to go or you think it should be going, that God has a wonderful plan to smooth out all of those wrinkles and make it just like you're like you're skipping through the roses and life is all good. And all you gotta do, all you have to do is just follow a couple rules, follow a couple regulations, you know, have your quiet time. Make, make, sure, make sure that you're doing the right things, that you're saying the right things. Make sure you're watching the correct movies and listening to the, to the correct music. And yes, the Victoria's Secret catalog is porn and you should not look at it. And you get all of these rules. I'm sorry, I didn't want to go there. Um, you get all of these rules that, that you, you're supposed to follow. And if you can just get those rules, then yeah, it's going to be good, man. God's going to come in, man. He's going to smooth it all out. We have bought into what uh, David Platt would call in his book, Radical, the American dream gospel. God loves you. That's just this amazing plan for your life. And he does have an amazing plan for your life. But I can't sit up here and tell you, stand up here and tell you it's going to be easy. Because you know what? Sometimes that plan is hard. It's hard. Sometimes the plan is hard. And difficult. Did I mention difficult? Let me throw in hard. There's no guarantee that it will be easy. And it, no guarantee that if you just say the correct things and do the correct things, that it's all just going to be smooth sailing. See, we've bought into that gospel. But the only problem with that whole philosophy, that whole mentality is it's the Bible. See, that's not the gospel that's in here. The gospel in here says, you know what? You are an enemy of God and your sin has separated you from him. And in your rebellion and in your sin, you can't even recognize or realize that you are broken and in need of him. And so you are completely dependent, not on yourself, not on what you can do. You are completely dependent on what God can do in your life through Jesus Christ, period. You can't do anything yourself. 
That's, that's the gospel. Not just follow the rules and read the books and it'll be okay. No, no, no. The gospel, the gospel's hard, man. And, 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 and when, when you get a hold of that idea, you begin to recognize what you are saved from is not, not the, the ups and downs and the struggles of life. What you are saved from is God's wrath and judgment for eternity. That's the gospel. You know, in the garden, and I was just kind of like really wrestling with this whole thing. You know, in the garden, Jesus gets on his knees, right? And, and he's, he's, he's anxious to the point of death. Death. He's just like, this whole thing is coming down on him, man. And he's just like, God, if there's another way, take this cup from me. And, and you know, as I begin to think about that, is Jesus really afraid of the Romans? They're going to beat on him. They're going to whip him. They're going to they're gonna torture him. They're going to nail him. I mean, is he really afraid about dying? Because, you know, as I look throughout history, there have been people that have been martyred for the faith that have joyously went and been burned at the stake, joyously went and, and, and singing hymns and praising God as their head is getting cut off. So am, am I to think that Jesus is a coward in that context and these other people are, are much more courageous than him? No, I, I, I don't think so. You see, what the weight of what Jesus was feeling in that moment that every person that was born that lived their life up until that point, the wrath and judgment of God was about to fall on him in that moment on the cross. On the moment on the cross, he completely drank the full cup of the wrath of God. And if that makes the Son of God nervous to the point of death, man, we, we need to think a little bit clearer about that. I mean, how do you respond to that? How, how, do, you, how do you respond to that gospel? It, it kind of throws our little Christianese sayings just out the window. You know, like, um, you know, accept Jesus into your heart. Invite him into your heart. Pray this prayer. Fill out this little commitment card for us so we can count you at the end of the year and we can post our numbers on Facebook so we can just kind of look good that we got you to say a little prayer. I do not believe it's, it's appropriate for us to bring people to a place of thinking that all they have to do, all they have to do is say a little prayer prayer and everything is okay because that's not the gospel. I, I think about Peter at, at, in, in the first couple chapters of Acts, Peter standing up filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what he did not say. He did not say, okay, my brothers, bow your heads, close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. And after he was done, he didn't say, okay, now with your, with, your, with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer, raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. It's not, it's not the way it went. What did he, he got up in front of those people and said, you, my brothers, the Jews, guess what? God, by his plan and his foreknowledge, handed over Jesus to you. And you, with wicked people, you nailed them to the cross and you killed them. Now, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can receive the Holy Spirit and the wrath of God will not fall on you. That's the gospel. And it's no longer a gospel of self-help. We have taken, we have taken the Son of God who endured the wrath, the whole wrath of God, who is, who is worthy to be praised. The angels praise Jesus and for what he did. They praise God for what God has done. 
We have taken the son of God and we've reduced him into this, this God who is begging for our acceptance. And I said it last week or two weeks ago, whenever we don't accept Jesus. We unconditionally surrender to Jesus. That is the gospel. That is what we see Mary doing as she sits at the feet of Christ, wiping his feet with her hair. She has given up her material stuff. She has given up her reputation all for the sake of knowing Jesus. She has given up everything. She has given up herself to gain Christ. Paul would say it this way in Philippians. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And so as you, as you think that over, what is he talking about? What are the things that he has given up? What are the things that now he considers to be garbage just for gaining Jesus? And you have to go, you have to go a few verses before that. For it is we who are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, Faultless. Uh, yeah, faultless. This is what Paul is considering garbage. On the eighth day, he was circumcised. And there were, there were other nations, other religions, other um, cultures that used circumcision as a rite of passage. But for Paul, he was circumcised into the nation of Israel. He was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. He was not someone who converted. Conversion was a good thing back then. They wanted people from other nations, from other cultures, from other religions to come and engage the Jewish tradition. But it made you a second-class citizen if you converted. Paul was not a convert. He was a Jew born of the tribe of Benjamin. This was, this was a distinguished tribe to be born from. This was, this is, he was born into an exclusive class, an exclusive tribe. He was, he, was, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He comes from a place of national and religious pride. He's a thoroughbred. And then he would say that he's a Pharisee. As to the law. And, and, and in this culture and, and during this time, many people believe that the Pharisee way of life was perceived as, as, um, as the pure faith that, that only could be attained by a certain few people because it was so, so difficult. They followed the scriptures better or closer, so they thought, and so other people thought, than any other sect of Judaism. He was devout. He studied the Bible. He memorized the entire Old Testament as a Pharisee. He memorized it, chapter and verse. I don't think they had, you know, maybe verses back then, but he knew the whole thing. And he, his life was dedicated to living it, to interpreting it. It was a hard way of life, but he was, he was a Pharisee. And then... As far as zeal, he persecuted the church. 
he persecuted those Christians because Paul believed in all his heart that this sect was going to destroy the scriptures, was perverting what God was and was ruining and leading people astray. And so he dedicated his life to going after them and telling them, uh-uh, it's, this is not the way it's going to happen. And in fact, even imprisoning people or having them killed. He was zealous for his faith, willing to give up everything for it. And as for following the rules, no one could bring a charge against Paul. No one. Not not saying that that he was faultless or sinless, but man, nobody could bring... As as to the traditions of the Pharisees, as to how they interpret the scriptures and how they should live it out, no one could bring charge to Paul. He was a devout educated, zealous man from the correct lineage. He walked in the commandments and the regulations that were required of him. And even in all of his pedigree and all of his ancestry and his zealousness and him being so devout, he considered all of that garbage to knowing who Jesus is. It was all trash, garbage. He left it all behind to follow Jesus. He had no promise of wealth. He had no promise of an easy life. He had no promise that somebody would esteem his name. In fact, in the book of Acts, Ananias, God, Jesus tells Ananias, he goes, you just go to Paul. You tell him what I told you. And then you tell him, I will show him what it means to suffer for my name. That is not really a great recruiting tactic. People don't get like, yeah, I am in. Paul left everything. For the sake of knowing Jesus. And so then I start to think, okay, let me look at my life. The things that I have in my life. What's important to me? Have I made it more important than Jesus? Just just knowing him. Knowing him. Not, not having him promise me that this, everything is going to be, just, 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 just to know him. Have I made other things important in my life than just knowing him? Even the good things, like the positive stuff. My, my, my marriage, 19 years, my children, my home, my church, my friends. Have I put those before? Have I put those as something more important than Jesus? Would I be willing to give up my reputation? Which probably probably be a good thing anyway, but would I be willing to give up all of the good things in my life, my comforts, my security, all to gain Christ? And you know what instantly pops in my head is, God would never ask me to do that. I mean, that was then, this is now. Jesus would never ask me to give up all of those things. That's just, that's, that's, that's nonsense. Is it? Is it? I mean, I mean, I'm not talking about just, here's the thing, you know, so often we, we get this perverted notion of, well, either God wants me to just get rid of all of my stuff and be done with it, or I'm just going to keep all my stuff and, you know, forget about God. And see, it doesn't say that Mary was at his feet and gave away everything she owned, but it cost her. It cost her her reputation. It cost her 
a year's worth. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money. Could you give up a year's worth of something that you save for? I mean, really, I mean, just to pour at the feet of Jesus. She gave up stuff. And I think too often, man, we just live this life like God would never ask me to give up that. But I'm not sure he's asking us to, I, I believe he's asking us, you know, make me first. If you just make me first, knowing me first, your relationship with me first, then you know what? You really give up nothing, but you gain everything. Do you see the difference? You make Jesus first, to know him first, to pursue him as the most important thing. And you give up nothing, but you gain everything. And we're so always so caught up in, I have to give up, and I have to not, and I have to can't, and, and all these things. Jesus, no. Pick, surrender your life to me and you will gain everything. And not, not more stuff, but those things just, they just don't look important anymore. They're just not important anymore because Jesus is important. And you begin to look at the things around you as, as garbage compared to him. I don't want to buy into, I don't want to live the American dream gospel anymore. But I want to know Christ. Know the power of his suffering. And walk in harmony with him. God, I want to thank you for your word and that you caused it to be written. God, help us to surrender. Help us to just open up our lives, our hearts, our hands, surrender. That we would make you first. That we would put you first. That our lives would be centered around you. And that by surrendering all to you, we gain everything. And all of this stuff in life just grows strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. Amen.